Disasters, True Stories Narrated by Brad Carty The Heisel Drama, Chaos in the Stadium In this year, 1985, if there is a soccer match not to be missed, it is the final of the Champions League, announced on May 29th and scheduled in Brussels at the Heisel Stadium. The match will oppose two of the most prestigious clubs on the continent. On the one hand, we have Liverpool FC, a great regular of the competition, four times winner in the last eight editions, and determined to bring the trophy back to England once again. On the other hand, Juventus of Turin, unfortunate finalist in 1983, who counts on its best element, the double golden ball of Michel Platini, to help them sit at the top of Europe. The event is unique. Paolo Rossi, Zbigniew Boniek, Bruce Grobelar, and so many other stars together on the same field. In Italy and England, fervent supporters beg their employers for time off. They invoke a sick grandfather, a wedding in the family, a premature birth. Anything is good to jump on a train, a bus, or a plane and swallow the many miles that separate them from Belgium. However, Undertaking such an epic journey is perilous if you are not lucky enough to have the precious ticket in your luggage, especially since these tickets were sold out all over the world in no time. On the spot, you have to hope to find a salesman who will not hesitate to make you pay more than 80 times the official price. If some enthusiasts are ready to do anything crazy to vibrate in the Heisel's enclosures, many of them still ignore that they will pay a high price. In the early morning of May 29th, Brussels wakes up peacefully, knowing full well that the calm will not last. Indeed, at midday, cohorts of fans invade the capital, dressed in red for Liverpool, white and black for Juve. While the latter, nicknamed the Typhoses, lay down in the parks around the stadium, the Reds flock to the Grand Palace, starting the festivities in front of the Town Hall and the King's House. The good-natured agitation is watched from the corner of the eye by police officers who are well aware of the bad reputation of English fans. They may be told that the Red Army, the Liverpool supporters, are the least violent in Britain, but hooliganism is never far away. All it takes is a handful of radicals and the situation can degenerate in the blink of an eye. In order to contradict these fears, the English traveling in the group had promised not to drink during the journey. Let's just say that, once they arrived, they immediately caught up. The Liverpool anthem, You'll Never Walk Alone, the famous standard covered by Nina Simone, Ray Charles, and Frank Sinatra, was soon playing everywhere. During the afternoon, with the help of the Belgian beer, the spirits start to rise and the police decide to gently take the Reds back to the stadium. There one could fear meeting with the Typhoses, but fair play prevails. English and Italian sing together, drink together, play soccer together. At 5 p.m., the doors of the Heisel Stadium open. 60,000 people are expected this evening and require a very precise organization. Gendarmes and policemen share the security. The Red Cross is also on the alert, ready to act at the slightest overflow. At the level of the bends, the X and Y blocks are assigned to the English. On the other side, 
the Italians are expected in blocks N and O. The side stands, as well as the M and Z blocks, are reserved for neutral English supporters. At the entrance, the authorities try to search each individual, confiscate any object that could be used as a weapon, and even ask some to remove their flags. It was impossible to proceed on a case-by-case -case basis, especially when several Reds fans tried to force their way in. On the outside, the unfortunate ones who could not get a seat had to redouble their ingenuity if they wanted to see a goal. A breach in the wall was made below, and allowed the smallest fans to infiltrate, narrowly avoiding the intervention of the police. At 6 o'clock p.m., 30,000 spectators are already installed and take their pain in patience. In a twist of fate, it turns out that Block Z, supposedly neutral, is actually filled with 90% of typhoses, separated from the reds of the neighboring block by a simple and thin grid reinforced by a dozen gendarmes. The tension rises slowly. Fortunately, half an hour later, players of the two teams tread the lawn one after the other, proceed to the traditional recognition of the ground, and capture the attention of their fans. The lull was short-lived. At around 7 p.m., an English fan perched himself high up and set fire to an Italian flag. The gesture is synonymous with a declaration of war, and the reaction is not long in coming. In response, the Reds receive cans and other projectiles from the Z-Block. The two sides then confronted each other on both sides of the gate. The forces of order had more and more difficulty in maintaining their position. Later, many will deplore their passivity at this precise moment. That said, it must be admitted that this evening, the police and the gendarmes were quite busy. In front of the stadium, a street vendor was robbed, supporters tried to sneak in their friends left on the sidelines, and several scuffles broke out in various places. These minor incidents left the field open at the junction of blocks X and Z, where two angry crowds were left to their own devices. At 7.20 p.m., the gate finally gave way. More than 400 Englishmen charged simultaneously into the ranks of the Italians and carried out a takeover of the stand, an emblematic maneuver among the hooligans. In the rush, a few knives were thrown and iron bars were raised and crushed on random skulls. Outnumbered, the gendarmes have to use their truncheons, but they are crushed without being able to restore order. Unaccustomed to such an offensive, the Typhoses retreat, trying to flee, but the Reds block the exits of the stand and force them against the surrounding wall. The most skillful manage to climb the wall and jump into the void where, nearly ten feet below, a bank of earth cushioned their fall. A father resigned himself to letting go of his 17-year-old daughter's hand and told her to run away before losing consciousness. When she wakes up confused, he will not be there anymore. The Italians suffocate, compressed in a corner of the block, and, under the pressure of their opponents, the wall suddenly collapses. It is chaos.
People trample each other, stepping over piles of bodies to get out of the melee. Powerless, the authorities can only observe the disaster, waiting for support that is slow to arrive. In the stadium, no one really realized the extent of the disaster. Italian survivors crossed the pitch and stood in front of the grandstand, alerting the officials. On the Red Cross side, they switched to war medicine. The medical stations were all full, filled with unconscious victims, deprived of oxygen for long minutes. In the absence of a sufficient number of stretchers, the injured were deposited against a low wall outside the stadium while waiting for the ambulances. In the blocks that were spared, the Italian fans were obviously thirsty for revenge. They left the stands and ran out onto the pitch towards the British. Their momentum was stopped by the late arrival of reinforcements. The light cavalry of the Belgian police intervened, restoring order and security as best they could. At around 8 p.m., Block Z looks like a battlefield. The rows are littered with debris and inert bodies with broken limbs. It is difficult to distinguish the dead from the living. While the death toll is still unknown, representatives of the two teams, the police, the Brussels City Hall, and UFA are meeting urgently. Together, they sought the answer to a critical question. Should the match be continued? Propriety would say no, of course, but it would be dangerous to cancel the event right away and release tens of thousands of mourning, enraged spectators onto the streets of the city. So the decision was made to hold the final in order to contain the public as long as possible. At 9.30 p.m., the captains of the two teams addressed the stadium in an attempt to calm the hostilities. A few minutes later, the game kicked off. The first half is surreal. Players and fans alike are still in shock, and at the end of the 45 minutes, the score remains tied. At the 56-minute mark, the Liverpool defender, Gary Gillespie, tackles a Juventini a little bit hard on the edge of the penalty area. The gesture was punished. The referee designated the penalty spot. Michel Plantini took the ball, ran up to it, took the shot, and put it into the net. The number 10 was jubilant and ran to the touchline and brandished his fist in the direction of the stands, briefly ignoring the extraordinary circumstances and the victims. His celebration will be reproached for a long time by journalists, to which he will answer, Those who blame me for this joy have never scored a goal in their lives. At the final whistle, Liverpool failed to respond in time, and Juventus won the European Champion Club's Cup. Instead of the famous ceremony, the Italian team was given the trophy in the corridors of the dressing room, out of sight. However, shortly afterwards, the team returned to the pitch and took a lap of honor, a choice that the Tifosis, divided between pain and victory, did not understand. The players were in fact acting on the orders of the Belgian authorities, taking advantage of the diversion to evacuate the English fans and send them on the first train back to England. The next day it was announced that 400 people were injured and 39 had died including 32 Italians, 4 Belgians, 2 French, and 1 Northern Irish. The tragedy would not go unpunished. In October 1988, 
the Heisel trial began, and its verdict was announced on April 28, 1989. Of the 26 British supporters charged, 13 received a three-year prison sentence, of which 18 months were suspended. Two officers of the gendarmerie were also scheduled to six months suspended prison time for, as the Belgian public prosecutor put it, what they did, but especially for what they did not do that day. The sanctions went further. The Liverpool club was suspended from European competition for six years, and the same ban was extended to all English clubs for a period of three years. The sentence had a little effect on the behavior of hooligans, who were back in the news that same year during the Euro matches. According to the sociologist Alain Ehrenberg, there is a rage to appear, a need to exist and to be feared by rival supporters, but also by the media. Each clan is looking for a quarter of an hour of glory, a trace to leave in history, and, on this point, we can unfortunately say that they have succeeded. To this day, among soccer fans, no one has erased the Heisel tragedy from memory. <laughs>